Amen. All right. Well, if you have a Bible today, let's open up to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And one of the things I was just thinking about in preparing for today's message and actually delivering it is, Lord, um, use your word to make us ready. Use your word that we would be ready, ready for the rapture, ready to die. You know, there's two ways of being ready. First of all, you have to be saved. If you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior, then uh, you need Jesus. You cannot stand before God on your own righteousness. And so if you're not a Christian and uh, maybe you're experiencing the the emptiness of life without God, because it is empty without God. My encouragement to you today is just to know how much God loves you, to know that he died for you on the cross and that he rose again the third day. And the Bible says that if you just turn from your sins, you just choose today to repent and receive Christ as Lord and Savior, then, then you'll be ready. And so I pray that you would. But even for the Christian, I think that you also, we also need to be ready for that day. Because First John chapter 2, verse 28, it says, Now little children abide in him, that when he appears, we may have confidence before him and not be ashamed at his coming. You see, it's for the non-Christian and it's also for the Christian, you know, to really be ready that when the Lord returns or, or when we die, and none of us knows when that moment is, that truly we would have no woulda, coulda, shouldas. That we'll have no regrets because we are living in light of the Lord's imminent return. And we're going to see that in today's study and we're going to see, it's kind of funny, the two big questions that people ask are, what happens when I die? And, and tell me about the end of the world. <laughs> and we're going to kind of touch on those two questions today. Beginning in verse 1 of 1 Thessalonians 5, it says, But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. He's talking about the day of the Lord. And you're like, well, what's the day of the Lord? Well, let me tell you four things about the day of the Lord that I think help us to understand it from a biblical perspective. Um, when you look at the day of the Lord in the Bible, you'll find that phrase 30 times, uh, 25 times in the Old Testament, five in the New. And the first time we find that phrase is over in Isaiah Chapter 2, verse 12, it says, For the day of the Lord of hosts shall come upon everything proud and lofty, upon everything lifted up, and it shall be brought low. In Isaiah chapter 3, verse 19, I'm sorry, 13, verse 9, the Bible says, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with both wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, and he will destroy its sinners from it. And so you're wondering, well, what's the day of the Lord? You know, found uh, 30 times in the Bible. What's it talking about? Well, let me tell you four things about it. Number one, the day of the Lord is a day of judgment upon the world. It's a day of judgment upon the inhabitants of the world who have rejected the Lord 
and love of God, the one that made them. It's going to be a terrible time of tears. According to, again, Isaiah chapter 13, verse 6, it says, Wail, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. And so, you know, we look at the world that we live in and we wonder sometimes how come there's so much wickedness and how can they get away with it? But no one gets away with it. One day there will be the day of the Lord and judgment will come. And it's interesting to me to note that the Hebrew and Greek word for judgment and justice is the same. One day justice will prevail. And we're going to see one day the world will be judged. And so the day of the Lord, number one, is judgment upon the Christ-rejecting world. That's what we see in the Bible. Secondly, the day of the Lord is also a day in which the Lord will move in the land of Israel. It's a day that makes a way for the Jews. And so when you look at it from a biblical perspective and you're wondering, what is this end of the world thing? And what is this day of the Lord thing? Number one is judgment on the world. Number two, it's movement in the Jews. It's movement in Israel. Again, Isaiah chapter 34, verse 8. It says, for it is the day of the Lord's vengeance, the year of recompense for the cause of Zion. Now, Zion is another name for, for Israel, for the Jews. And when you look at the scriptures, what you find is the day of the Lord is God's going to judge the world, but God's going to again begin moving in the nation of Israel. And you'll see during that seven-year tribulation period that God is going to prepare the Jews for the coming of their Messiah. And many of them will not only be preaching the gospel, they'll be receiving the gospel. Warren Wiersbe, he sums it up like this. And he says, the day of the Lord is that time when God will judge and punish the nations. At the same time, he says, God will prepare Israel for the return of Jesus Christ to the earth to establish his kingdom. Now, we don't know the the, the day or the hour of the Lord's return, but I I do believe when we look at our study today that this passage teaches us that Christians who are living in the last of the last days, which I believe is us, we're living in the last of the last days. We will be able to know that we're living in these times, that we're living in that season. And so that's why Paul again says there in verse 1, notice it says, but concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. If you go down to verse 4, it says, But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. So, four things about the day of the Lord. Number one is judgment on the world. Number two, it's movement in Israel. Number three, and now we get a visual, it's like a thief in the night. And I think when you start just taking these things and you put them where they belong, you're going to have a really good understanding of what the day of the Lord is. You know, uh, what we see is described as a thief in the night, um, not only here by Paul, over in Second Peter chapter 3, verse 10a, it says the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. And, and what we find when we read the Bible is the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night for those who are not right. You guys like the way it rhymes? You guys like that? 
Because you've got to remember, man, the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night for those who aren't right. That's why you've got to make sure that you're right in God's sight. You've got to be right with the Lord. That's the day of the Lord for those who are right in Christ and they're abiding and they're walking and watching and waiting and seeing the times and the seasons and the reasons for his imminent return, it's totally different. He says there in verse 4, you guys aren't in the dark. You guys know what's up. You guys have the light of the Lord and the light of his word. You guys have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. For you, it's different. We see the signs of the season. You know, and Israel, even if it was just Israel, that would be enough, that they would actually be reborn as a nation in 1948. When you read Luke 21, it talks about that being a sign. It's like a fig tree that's blossoming again. It says, and when you see this happen, know that the generation that sees this happen, I'm coming in that generation. And it's Israel itself is a sign Ethnic tension around the world is a sign, according to Luke chapter 21, where it says nation will rise against nation, literally in the Greek, ethnos against ethnos. Billy Graham said, if I could solve one problem on planet Earth, it would be the problem of ethnic tension. Why? Because he's traveled the world and he sees the calamity that racism and ethnic tension brings. Even today, we you know, are so sophisticated and we have so much technology, but we have not been able to have the power and the capacity to overcome these things. These are things that are getting worse and worse. They're increasing in frequency and intensity. You have Israel. You have ethnic tension. You have war going on all around the world, You know, especially in Israel. You know, and so for me, when I see war In Israel, I see war in the Middle East. And what we see is not only war. I mean, we're talking about barbarianism. We're talking about brutality. We're talking about beheadings. We're talking about people cutting off, you know, the kids' hands and feet and heads. And this is God just making the signs larger. War in the Middle East. War in Israel. All these are signs. The earthquakes uh, that are increasing in Frequency and intensity, the famines, and you would figure by today we would have that one figured out. And yet, around the world is such a huge issue. Um, The pestilences, you know, uh, I'm still, uh, uh, seriously, God is just kind of bringing it to the forefront. You might want to take note of this uh, Ebola, which, again, don't want to sensationalize. There's one thing about me that I don't want to do. I don't want to be one of those pastors that sensationalize things and they see something and just kind of like, you know, take that and try to manipulate the people. No, I don't want to be that way. But when I see these things happening in the last, you know, what is it, the last uh, seven months, 4,000 deaths from Ebola, when we see this man in Texas recently after 12 days being in the hospital dying, then today we find out that one of his caretakers has Ebola You know, what is it telling us? God is just saying, listen, you know, um, I'm coming. I mean, when you look at the signs and, you know, you have uh, today the national acceptance of homosexuality. And now you guys have heard it in the news, right? You've heard in the news. And now in our country, there are 26 states where it's legal. And right around the corner, six more states are just about to make it legal. You have 19 countries around the world 
that accept gay marriage. And what is happening is happening fast. And Romans chapter 1 says that when that happens, that's a sign of God's judgment where God says, okay, have it your way. I'm going to let go. And God gave them up to their debased mind. All I'm saying, you guys, is that to us, it doesn't overtake us as a thief. We're not in the dark. We know these are the signs of this season. We know the Lord is coming. I mean, even if I could just mention this, and again, I think there is some solid evidence to mention to you the blood moons. You know, the Bible talks about the the stars as being for signs and for seasons. Now, don't get me wrong. We're not into astrology, you know, that kind of science stuff. You know, uh, we have the Bible, and this is where we base everything. We test everything from the Bible. But every once in a while, God might use a dream. And every once in a while, God might use a sign like a blood moon, like he said he would in Acts chapter 2, right? And so you have not only blood moons, but what you have going on, you guys, is they're called tetrads. They're four blood moons in succession. It's only happened a handful of times in the last 600 years. And every time it does, this is the interesting thing. When these tetrads are taking place, they're falling on Jewish holidays. Okay, that's not a coincidence. And when it happened in 1492 and 93, the Jews were kicked out of France. We discovered America, a place that would be an asylum for the Jews where 5 million Jews lived, second only to Israel. It affected Israel. When the tetrad of blood moons that fell on Jewish holidays took place in 1948, Israel became a nation. When it happened in 1967, they regained Jerusalem. It happened this year. We know in April and October it fell on the Jewish feasts of Passover and Tabernacles. It will happen again next year. And things are stirring up in Israel. All I'm saying is, man, these are not coincidences. You know, and, and you just begin to put everything together and then you realize, you know, the Lord's coming. And so for us, it doesn't overtake us. We see the signs and we know that Jesus is coming. I'm not scared about this. I'm excited, but I'm also motivated to live my life in a way that would be worthy of him coming while I'm working, while I'm waiting, while I'm watching, because that's what he wants. We as believers, we see the signs. And, you know, when you study through the passage today, you're going to notice the distinction between the believer and the non-believer. And I think perhaps in one sense, between the carnal Christian and the committed Christian. One's ready, one's not ready. You see, the day of the Lord will take place like a thief in the night. Paul mentions this. uh, Peter mentions it. And where do you think they got it from? They got it from Jesus, right? If you go over to Matthew 24, if you would, let's turn there. To Matthew 24, in verse 36. And this is right after he talks about Israel and the fig tree. And he says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words, they will not pass away. He says in verse 36, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my father only And as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as the days, in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, 
and did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and the other left. Watch, therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not expect. You see, the Lord is teaching that the Son of Man is coming like a thief in the night. We don't know the day or the hour. We know the season, though. We need to be watching, though. We need to be working, though. We need to be ready for the rapture. Now, you might wonder, why would he describe his coming like the coming of a thief in the night? Why would Jesus say this? Why would Peter say this? Why would Paul say this? And there are those who would say, well, it's simply because it's an illustration, highlighting the element of surprise and uh, maybe a lack of uh, expectation on the part of the non-Christian or the carnal Christian. And they might say that it ends there, but there actually might be more to it than that. You know, as a thief, Jesus coming as a, as a thief, look at, if you would, in verse 38 again, for as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. In other words, they're just living their life, right? Until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and notice, took them, took them all away took them. You see, there's an element there, I think, when you look at the rapture of the church, and when you study 1 Thessalonians 4.17, the Bible says that those who are alive and remain, they will be caught up, harpasso. The Greek word means to seize, to carry off by force. It means to claim for oneself. It's fascinating to me when you just dig down a few layers into the original language, you'll find that the words in 1 Thessalonians 4 and here in Matthew 24, they're related in their theology and their etymology and their eschatology. They're related because it's the same teaching. And so what, what I think the truth is, is that the thought of the Lord being a thief is, is more than simply a surprise at night, although that's part of it. It's actually the concept of being taken away from this house where we're held hostage, it's like the thief coming and seizing and stealing away, so to speak, uh, those who belong to himself. It's as if we've been taken prisoner in a foreign land, if you can visualize that, and Jesus is the good thief in the sense that he's broken, he's breaking in to rescue us. See, and that's what is taking place. That's what... The rapture is. It's a thief in the night. There's a surprise to it. Yes, there's a lack of expectation to it in one sense, but it's actually just Jesus doing a rescue mission and saying, that one, he's mine. That one, he's mine. That one, they love me. I'm taking them out. It's fascinating to me when you look at this and you understand the day of the Lord. And, and, I, and, I, and going through this, you guys, we're not going to be able to cover like exhaustively, but I, do, I did want to plan a few things in your mind. According to the scriptures, the day of the Lord is judgment on the world. 
According to the scriptures, the day of the Lord is dealing with Israel and getting them ready for Jesus. According to the scriptures, the day of the Lord is like a thief in the night. They don't know about it. They're not ready. We are. Jesus is going to rescue us. And according to the scriptures, there's a fourth thing. The day of the Lord is like a woman in labor ready to give birth. Look at verse 3. It says, For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. So on the way to that day, somewhere along the way, there's going to be a declaration of peace. But suddenly there will be no peace. According to the scriptures, there's going to be pain in this pregnancy. And this woman is kind of like giving birth. And you're like, well, what's that all about? Well, according to Daniel 9.27, when the Antichrist comes, he's going to sign a peace treaty, a covenant involving Israel. Now, I would imagine it's probably going to have to do with Israel and Palestine. Today, they're, 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 the world longs for that. The world pushes for that. They send diplomats over there constantly hoping that the day would come when you know, that treaty is, is agreed upon. In other words, the world leader will somehow make peace there in the Middle East. He's going to bring peace between Palestinians and Israel and some sort of covenant that they can agree on. And of course, for us, just the whole push for peace is a sign of the season. It's proof of Jesus coming. But when that seven-year covenant is signed, we know the church is raptured out. And according to Second Thessalonians 2, verse 7, the restraining work of the Holy Spirit working through the church is then taken out of the way. And so that day we're taken out, the restraining work of the Holy Spirit is holding back all the wickedness right now. Imagine that's taken away. What kind of world is this going to be? Paul compares it to a woman in labor uh, for a few reasons. Um, Number one, when that happens, uh, you guys, you remember girls, when you heard the news that you're pregnant? You're like, okay, man, nine months down the road, it's going to be cool, right? You're so excited. I, you know, every time I hear that any girl's pregnant, to me, it's just great news. Man, a life. How beautiful. There's an expectancy in a pregnancy. But what's going to happen when you give birth? Pain, right? It's going to hurt, man. <laughs> I'm so glad I'm a guy. <laughs> You know, um, that was before epidurals. I think that's kind of cheating. Um, no, I'm just joking. I'm just joking. You know, before C-sections and all that, you know, just pain. I mean, there's just no way around it. And, and then, you know, there's purpose. You go through all that pain, all that pain, and you have this beautiful, beautiful life. And that's the day of the Lord. That's the day of the Lord. There's an expectancy there's pain, and there's going to be pain. There's going to be unparalleled pain on planet Earth. But then there's a purpose. After it's all said and done, and all the dust settles, and everybody is where they belong, you guys, we're going to be home. We're going to be in paradise. We're going to live life with a capital L. You see, and that's what the Lord is talking about here. I mean, you know, you got to visualize it as that. There's mom, she's, you know, nearing the end of her pregnancy. The baby's, 
growing. They're actually both growing, right? <laughs> and as the weeks go on, you know, eventually she gets the sonogram. She feels the baby move and kick and... You know, both mom and the baby continue on, and towards the end of the pregnancy, mom kind of can't wait till the baby's born, and and then the Braxton Hicks, and maybe there's a burst of energy, and then there's that amazing moment when mom tells dad with a glisten in her eye, you know, maybe a little painful, but just beautiful, I, this is it, <laughs> and then you're off to give birth. You don't necessarily know the day, you just know the baby's coming, but when that baby comes, the joy it brings. And so we have to see the day of the Lord like that. We have to see the day of the Lord as, okay, justice will be served, judgment on planet Earth. All those guys doing those crazy things. And I see news stories. And again, God can save anybody. But, you know, you just see things. Teachers with kids and, you know, all the violence that's going on around the world. And you're just, man, you're just like, Lord, it can't go on. And, and it's true. Eventually there will be justice. And then there's the movement in Israel. God's going to bring his people to him. And then there's the thief in the night. And we now know what that means. And the woman in labor and pregnancy. And, and so uh, giving you four things about the day of the Lord, I want to end it with two things for you as Christians. Four things about the day. Two things about disciples. Number one, in light of all this, I want you to know who you are. The Bible wants you to know who you are. Look at verse 5. You are all sons of light, sons of the day. We are not of the night, nor of darkness. Paul, he wants them to know who they are. You're a Christian? You're a Christian, you're a son of, of light, you're a daughter of light, you're a child of light, you're a child of the Lord, not darkness, the day, not the night, holiness, not wickedness. You belong to God. And you're not going to get anywhere until you realize who you are. Maybe you don't feel it, but it's just who you are. You know, you gave your life to Christ. You're a son of light. You're the son of the day. You know, we have the light of the Lord himself, and we have the light of his word, right? Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world, and he who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. We have the light of the Lord. We have the light of his word. Now, Jesse, I think, oh, no, he didn't. Psalm 119, 105, it says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And so, have you guys ever gone camping and you go out there and there's no there's no lights and it's pitch dark? It's kind of cool, huh? You're like, whoa, I can't see my, my hand in front of my face, right? And so, that's kind of the world that we live in. Uh, we live in a world that's pitch dark and dangerous. But Jesus is right here. He's our light. He's right in front of you. And you have a flashlight too. Maybe an iPhone flashlight or whatever, but it's your little flashlight. That's the Bible. And you have both, and you're going to make it through. Why? Because you're a child of the light. And if you can visualize that, it's so cool. And we are as disciples. We are children of God. And for us, we know He's coming, man. We see the signs of His return 
And so Paul says, I want you to know who you are, and then this is what you need to do. He says there in verse 7, I'm sorry, verse 6, he just brings it into application. Okay, knowing all these things, therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, they sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. You see, the day of the Lord is coming like a thief in the night, suddenly, like a a woman in labor, uh, painfully. We don't know the day or the hour, but since we're children of the light and not of the night, we're able to see the signs and seasons and reasons for the Lord's return. And so, There should be a difference between us and them. That's what Paul is saying. They and we. There is a distinction here in the pronouns between the church and the world. Now, the world doesn't see because they can't see. But the carnal Christian doesn't see because they won't see. And that's why... He's just telling telling the Christians, don't be like the world. You're of the day, not of the night. You're different. That's what he's telling them. You know, you're to to, to wake up. He says there in in verse 6, Therefore let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and, and be sober. Now, I don't know about you, but I love sleep. Pray for me, man. I can fall asleep anytime. I never have a problem sleeping at night, and uh, even while I'm driving. So pray for me, man. And I don't you guys love naps? So I got to be careful because um, if I take too many naps, my weeds start growing, if you know what I mean, and things start dilapidating around the house. Um, there's a time to sleep. Don't get me wrong. Get your sleep. But um, for us spiritually. You know, you don't fall asleep, man. You you gotta watch, you gotta you gotta wait, you gotta work, you gotta be alert. That's what he's saying right there. You know, the Greek word translated watch, it means to take heed, lest a calamity overtake you. You know, one of the things I noticed about my wife and some people who are good at security guards, you know some people they have the gift of being a security guard? Some security guards don't have that gift, right? <laughs> but some guys they just know when something's up. They just kind of know, hey, that guy's going to rip us off or whatever. This is going to happen. My wife has that gift, man. She's able to see something, right? And we kind of got to be that way when there's a danger. You know, for us spiritually, we have to be able to not sleeping. We can't be sleeping on that watch. There's a watch. There's a there's an enemy who's trying to take me down, my wife down, my kids down, the family down, the flock down. There has to be a watch. We have to be awake we have to be sober and you guys know what it is you know literally being drunk you know what it does to your reactions to your senses uh you know you can't function at at your at your greatest uh, peak same thing you know spiritually speaking we have to be sober have to have all our senses when jesus died on the cross did you know they offered him some wine they wanted him to get kind of just drunk and dull the senses and he refused it 
He said, I'm not going to get drunk. I'm not going to taste that wine because I must have my fullest faculties in order to die on this cross. And we have to be the same way. We can't be literally drinking or spiritually drinking. We must be awake and watching and sober with all of our faculties in order to die on the cross that we're called to carry and 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 in a, in a sense, verse seven, it kind of it just brings everything. He says, "Those who sleep, they sleep at night, and those who get drunk, they get drunk at night." That's not who we are. But let us who are of the day. And here's something that you can maybe hone in on: be sober. How? Putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. And so, there's three things that I would encourage you to grow in. Faith, love, and hope. And when you grow in those uh, Christian virtues, it's protecting you. It's protecting you like a breastplate over your heart and over the organs of your body. You know, um, growing in faith, growing in the Word of God. Right? What am I supposed to do? You keep studying the Bible. Keep reading the Bible. Uh, love it, learn it, and live it. Read it and heed it. And we read in Romans ten seventeen that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So you keep learning the Bible, loving the Bible, living the Bible, right? You're going to grow in faith. Have like a little temperature gauge here or whatever, a little barometer. How's your faith? Are you one of those people who are afraid all the time? Are you a doubter? How's your faith? Secondly, how's your love? How's your love? And like I told you before, love begins first by loving God. Don't put other people before God. You love God. And Jesus said, if you love me, you're going to keep my commands. You love God. You love other people. How are you doing in your love barometer? Right? And then, you know, I think the antithesis to love is selfishness. Right? So how are you doing in faith? How are you doing in love? And how are you doing in hope? And what that is, that helmet of salvation is, is, is going to protect your mind. And, and what it is, is the assurance of salvation. Do you know? Are, are, are you persuaded? Are you convinced? Are you where you belong? You know, and that assurance of salvation, knowing, no, it's not based on my righteousness. It's based on the righteousness of Christ I've really given him in my heart. Because on your heart, there's a throne. Who sits on the throne of your heart? Have you given your heart to Christ? Is he the Lord and Savior of your life? You see, we need to, as God's children, wake up. Snap out of it, right? Don't you hate the alarm clock? <laughs> Reuben, his alarm clock goes off every once in a while during study, right? And if you guys have probably heard it, he always wakes me up while I'm preaching, man. You, know, you guys need that. You guys need that, that, that alarm, right, in your life. You hate it sometimes, but where would we be without it, right? We need to wake up. We need to dress up. As is mentioning here, the breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation. And then we need to grow up. You know, Look at verse 9. It says, For God did not appoint us to wrath. Aren't you guys happy about that? Thank you, Jesus. 
but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. I can't wait for that day when pizza is no longer fattening, man. Oh, it's going to be awesome. We're probably going to have like a lamppost pizza in heaven. Good stuff. And, and so therefore, he says, comfort each other and edify one another, just as you also are doing. Man, he's just saying, when, with this, I want you guys to be encouraged. That's the Greek word for comfort here. I want you to be built up. I want you to be blessed. Like I was telling you in the beginning of the study, my prayer is that in this study, through this study, God would make us ready. Really ready for his return. And that's my prayer, man. It's all founded on the fact that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. If you're here today and you haven't given your life to Christ, I pray that you would today. It's so cool. The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that it's free. You're like, come on, give me a break. There's always a catch. It's never free. Oh, it's free. (laughs) It's a free gift because God gave his son. You know, recently I heard a story about, uh, many of you have probably heard of the guy Jim Elliott. Have you guys ever heard of him? Jim Elliott, he's a a missionary. Um, They gave his life in the jungles of Ecuador. And uh, him, and along with four other missionaries, you know, when they graduated from college, and Jim Elliott, he graduated from Wheaton College, man. He had, like, he could have done almost anything. Just a great intellectual of his day. But what he did was he decided to become a missionary, and they decided to go down to the jungles of Ecuador, and they attempted to reach an unreached people group at that time, known as the Alka Indians, no one had ever reached them. No one had ever survived. But they had a plan, and they you know, went down there, and they started dropping off supplies and reaching out to them, and even had an experience where they had a, a, one of the Alka Indians come, and they gave him a ride on the airplane and, and all that kind of stuff. They, they thought that things were going good. But then one day, um, a whole group of, mich- of, of uh, Alka Indians came, and they thought that this was the breakthrough. So they're on the phone, and they say, hey, we'll, we'll call you back. You know, in three hours, they never called them back because what happened was those, those Alka Indians came and they killed these missionaries. You know, the missionaries had guns. They could have shot them if they wanted to. They could have defended themselves if they wanted to. But they had already gone into it knowing we won't do that because if they die, they'll go to hell. If we die, we know we're going to heaven. And so Jim Elliott, they speared him, they thrust him through, and later on they found his body, and someone had taken a machete to his body, and they just chopped him all up to pieces. And so, uh, you know, time goes on, and most of you probably know the story in The Gates of Splendor. is a great book, but, but what you find is that, you know, Jim Elliott's wife, Elizabeth, and Nate Saint's sister, they actually went back, and they... You know, they reached out to these that had killed their loved ones. And they all came to Christ. It's totally the Lord. They all came to Christ. But one of the fascinating stories to me is the dad of Jim Elliot. His name is Fred. And after the, the tribes had, a, had a, you know, come to Christ, Jim Elliot's dad flew down to the jungles of Ecuador 
And uh, he wanted to visit the tribe, but he actually wanted to make a beeline for the one who had killed his son because they knew the one who had killed his son. And so he said, who killed my son? And they said, he did. And Jim Elliot's dad, he went to him and he hugged him. And he said, just as God gave his son for me to be saved, I gave my son for you to be saved. And that's what the Lord has done for us. I would never give my son for you. I'm sorry, man. (laughs) But that's what God has done. And that's why he's saying right here, you know, he died for us. And so I don't know about you, but to me, the logic is pretty simple. If God would die for me, if God would give his son to die for me, how shall I not live for him? And so I pray that you would, because when you do... You won't regret it. One day you'll stand before the Lord and you're going to have a reward that's going to blow your minds. God's going to work in you and God is going to work through you because he loves you so much. Let's pray.